0: This Lord's Day, we come to Mark chapter 8 in our series through the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 8. What does the Lord intend in displaying His mighty acts in history? In other words, why does the Lord not only give us His word to hear and to obey, but also give to us His mighty acts in history to behold, His wonders to behold, not only that which is of a miraculous nature, but that which is providential, that which comes to us even daily, all of the great things that God gives to us. Why does He do so? We hope to answer that question as we proceed through the sermon this Lord's Day. The question, of course, assumes that God is indeed active in history and is active in the universe which He has created. For we are not deists believing that God created all things and then retreated to heaven to allow the universe and the world to unwind. You no, our God, the one true living God, the God revealed in Holy Scripture, though infinite in being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, is yet a God who is very near unto us. In fact, nearer than our own words unto us all those who are declared righteous through faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ have been eternally elected in Christ, eternally known in Christ, eternally loved in Christ. And therefore, dear ones, history is simply the manifestation of God's glory in loving, in redeeming, in justifying in sanctifying and in glorifying wretched sinners like you and me. Whether it be God's extraordinary acts of providence, that is, His miracles, or His ordinary acts of providence, that is, His daily provision for our needs, God is actively and personally at work in this world and in the lives of his people, those who do not see God active in history are blind indeed. So, this Lord's Day, dear ones, we shall see that Christ's miracles reveal three significant truths. First, his miracles reveal the compassion of Christ. As we see in Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. Secondly, Christ's miracles reveal the obstinacy of the Pharisees in Mark chapter 8, verses 10 through 13. And finally, the miracles of Christ reveal the weaknesses of Christ's disciples in Mark chapter 8, verses 14 through 21. Let us then consider, first of all, Christ's miracles reveal the compassion of Christ. In Mark chapter 8, the first nine verses, we read, In those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples unto him and saith unto them, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now been with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away fasting to their own houses, they will faint by the way, for divers of them came from far. And his disciples answered him, From whence can a man satisfy these men with bread here in the wilderness? And he asked them, How many loaves have ye? And they said, Seven. And he commanded the people to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and gave thanks and break, and gave to his disciples to set before them, and they did set them before the people. And they had a few small fishes, and he blessed and commanded to set them also before them. So they did eat and were filled, and they took up, Of the broken meat that was left, seven baskets. And they that had eaten were about four thousand, and he sent them away. You will recall that the Lord, having returned from the area of Tyre and Sidon, first went to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, known as Decapolis. This was perhaps due to his desire to avoid immediate confrontation with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and with Herod, who were on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, in the region known as Galilee. The Lord had a plan, dear ones, and a divine time schedule according to which he ministered. He avoided confrontation with his opponents when it did not serve the will of his Father. And I think, dear ones, we as well must learn that we must choose our battles over the truth wisely. Not every possible confrontation for the sake of the truth truth is necessarily the wisest course of action on our part. Lest we spend our entire lives in nothing else but polemics, debating, even if it is the truth. If we are constantly confronting our opponents, then will we have time to feed the lambs in our own household? Or to feed the lambs within the church of Jesus Christ who earnestly and patiently wait? to hear the truth of Christ. This requires wisdom on our part, and certainly the Lord had that wisdom and avoided the confrontations with the Pharisees because it was not his time. After healing the man who was deaf and who had the speech impediment... By most unusual means, as we discovered last Lord's Day in Mark chapter 7, verses 31 through 37, the Lord, yet ministering in the same region of Decapolis on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, again performs one of the most amazing miracles of all. He multiplies bread and fish to feed literally thousands. This time, there are 4,000 men besides women and children. You'll remember in Mark chapter 6, a very similar miracle. He had fed 5,000 besides women and children. Now, the question should probably arise in our minds here. Why would the Holy Spirit inspire Mark to record a miracle that was so similar to one he had? previously recorded. What is the purpose in the Lord giving us another miracle of the same nature? Why did he give us this again? Even though it may have happened in the life of Christ, why did the Holy Spirit see fit to include it again in this gospel of, uh, gospel of Mark? Well, I would suggest there, that there are two reasons from our text here. The first nine verses. Two reasons. First of all, to demonstrate the Lord's compassion in supernaturally feeding the 4,000 who had attentively been with him for three days already. Notice what the, the Word of God says. In those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples unto him and saith unto them, I have compassion on the multitude. Now, notice the word because. Because, the reason, in other words, for the compassion that the Lord had upon this specific multitude is stated now. Because they have now been with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away fasting to their own houses, they will faint by the way, for divers of them Came from far. It would appear the Lord's compassion and pity for this multitude was not limited, dear ones, to giving them spiritual food, but was revealed by providing as well for them their daily bread and giving to them physical food had first demonstrated their spiritual appetite in hungering and thirsting for the for the for for the Lord Jesus Christ, for his righteousness and his truth. And now the Lord has compassion upon those who have sacrificed, who have inconvenienced themselves, who are discomforted at this time, and without food because they have been attentive to Him, because their inattentiveness to their physical needs was due to their attentiveness to their spiritual needs. And as a result, the Lord rewards them, as it were, and shows them great compassion, because He in effect says, By so doing, here is a people, here is a multitude that has demonstrated they want to hear my words. They want to commune with me. They want to fellowship with me. They want to grow as students in their knowledge of me. It would appear that these people had not been without food for all three days, perhaps having come from a distance, as the Lord says, that they packed with them necessities for a period of time, but now, for the most part, had run out of food. And the Lord recognizes this, realizes this. But these people, interestingly enough, didn't begin to simply Leave. They didn't begin to meander away because they didn't have food. It was the Lord who, after the third day, recognized that they were without food, who then says, I have compassion on them. It's not because the crowd began to disperse and the Lord said, Well, I better do something quick to keep these people here if I want to teach them. These people wanted to stay when they were not about to leave. Again, this demonstrates a kind of hungering and thirsting on the part of this people, which should be so true in those who call upon the name of the Lord of those who call themselves Christians and profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for their eternal salvation. One of the marks and one of the characteristics of those who are Christians is that there is within them that hungering and thirsting to know the Lord and to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. They realize they fall. They realize that they, they uh, sin against the Lord. They realize and acknowledge this. But in the midst of all of their weaknesses and their failures, they realize there was within me this principle. There is within me this appetite to know the Lord and to return to the Lord and to forsake my sins and turn from them and to embrace Christ and His forgiveness. Dear ones, we can fall upon the compassion of Christ and we can fall upon the promises of God to provide for our needs as well. We can do so if if we manifest in our hearts a desire to commune with Christ, to sit at His feet and be taught of Him even at the expense of our own personal comfort. There's a promise in Philippians chapter 4, verse 19, that we hear quoted very often, but I fear is quoted out of context. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. We forget to read the passages, the verses that come before that so often because in those we find that this promise is issued because the Philippians had been faithful in sharing of their abundance with Paul and with other Christians who were in need. In other words, they could expect God to supply their needs because they were seeking to supply the needs of their minister and of other Christians. You see, to all the the promises that God gives to us in his word, we will find a condition attached to that particular promise. Here, if we are faithless in caring for the needs of others, we cannot expect God to supply all our needs. If we are not showing mercy to others, we cannot expect God to show us mercy. If we do not forgive others their sins and their trespasses, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, in in Matthew chapter 7, if we do not forgive others, we cannot expect God as our Father to forgive us our sins and our trespasses. because the Philippians had been sowing faithfully in God's field, they could expect to reap a harvest of provision for their necessities from the Lord. And that's what we find, I would suggest to you, in this account of the 4,000. They had been sowing into the field by hungering and thirsting for Christ and His righteousness. They had been sowing by way of their time and their energy and sacrificing their comfort. And the Lord rewards them by granting to them their physical, their daily bread. How, dear ones, is your hungering for Christ and my hungering for Christ exhibited How are we willing to be inconvenienced in order to commune with Christ? Are we willing to lose a little sleep, to have our secret worship before we go to bed at night? Are we willing to get up a little early in the morning because we know we have to be at work at a certain time in order to commune with Christ, to read his word, to fellowship with him in prayer? Are we willing to put ourselves out for others? Now, other words, that is not to say that the multitude earned the compassion of the Lord through their works. Nor can we earn the compassion and favor and mercy of the Lord through our works. No, the compassion of the Lord... Dear ones, was first manifested to the multitude and to us in graciously granting us the desire to hunger and thirst for Christ. In giving to us that appetite that didn't come from us, that came from God. And so when He gives to us the gift of faith, the gift of hungering and thirsting for Him, and we simply hunger and thirst for Him, then He rewards us for our hungering and thirsting for Him. What an amazing God. What a merciful and gracious God that He rewards us for simply using what He blessed us with. There's another reason, it would seem, that Mark has recorded this miracle, the miracle of feeding the 4,000 in addition to the miracle of feeding the 5,000, even though it's very similar to the miracle of feeding the 5,000. And I would suggest it is to reveal the compassion of Christ in another way. The compassion of Christ in continuing to instruct his disciples in truths, which they had been taught on an earlier occasion. In Mark chapter 8, verse 4, from our text, notice when the Lord expresses to the disciples that he wants to feed the multitude, that he he has compassion for, for the multitude. Notice the response of the disciples. And his disciples answered him, From whence can a man satisfy these men with bread here in the wilderness? Question mark why is that such a strange question for the very reason that the Lord had just three or four months previously fed a larger multitude who were in as desperate of a situation and who miraculously multiplied bread and fish to feed them The compassion of the Lord, dear ones, is manifested in that the Lord, it would appear, takes the disciples through the same miracle or similar miracle in order to teach them the same lesson which they obviously had not learned before, but compassionately takes them through the same lesson again to teach them the same truth. I'm God as the Lord Jesus Christ would be saying, I'm God, I'm able to supply the needs of people regardless of where they are, how many they are, what they have or they don't have. You see, the disciples were yet limiting the Son of God. How can we possibly feed all these people here in the midst of the wilderness? There's no town to go and buy bread. We can't send them out themselves to do so. We don't have enough money to do so. You see, these are similar questions that they were asking the first time around. The saying goes, misery loves comfort. And I think that we also take comfort in God's giving to us these particular illustrations of the disciples' sins. Because we realize we're in the exact same boat. We are continuously learning and being taught over and over and over again the same lessons. But you know, the Lord Jesus Christ is as merciful and compassionate to us as he was to that multitude to teach us these truths. Where's the harsh rebuke from the Lord in this particular case? It's none mentioned. It certainly could have been appropriate. The Lord certainly had reason to rebuke them very harshly at this point. Because their words that they spoke in Mark 8.4 are very, very similar to to the words of the Israelites who wandered in the wilderness after having seen the mighty acts of God displayed on their behalf and being delivered out of Egypt, out of bondage, coming across the Red Sea on dry land, destroying their enemies. The people of Israel said in Psalm 78:19, as recorded by the psalmist, Yea, they spake against God. Here's what they said. Can God furnish a table in the wilderness? Can God furnish a table in the wilderness? Here the disciples are uttering very similar words. From whence can a man satisfy these men with bread here in the wilderness? I would suggest to you, dear ones, the rebuke, in effect, comes not so much in Christ's words, but in revealing his compassion to them by reminding them of how he provided earlier by doing it again. In other words, he, in effect, rebuked them. And how many times does the Lord rebuke us, not in not in sending some grievous affliction and discipline into our life, but in the midst of our unbelief, our failing unbelief before the Lord. He sends us a blessing and then we yield in shame and from our eyes pour forth tears. Why didn't we believe the Lord? Why didn't we trust Him? Sometimes that type of rebuke is even more difficult to endure than the harsh rebuke from the Lord. Dear ones, when we see the compassion of the Lord patiently working with His disciples to grow them up in Himself, how can we be so impatient and harsh in our treatment of one another? We're sinners alike, all in the same boat. We fail, we commit sin against the Lord our God. We fail one another. And yet we expect to hold a higher standard than God himself does with us. God have mercy upon us for our lack of mercy and for our lack of impatience and not being willing to go over and over and over again Those truths to teach our children, husbands, to teach our wives. And as ministers and elders to teach the congregation of God. And you as the congregation to go over and over in teaching one another if that's necessary. Which brings us to our second main point. And that is that Christ's miracles reveal the obstinacy of the Pharisees. Not only demonstrate and reveal the compassion of Christ, but his miracles revealed the obstinacy of the Pharisees. Look with me at Mark chapter eight, verses ten through thirteen. And straightway he entered into a ship with his disciples and came unto the parts of Dalmanutha. And the Pharisees came forth and began to question with him, seeking of him a sign from heaven, tempting him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and saith, Why doth this generation seek after a sign? Verily I say unto you, there shall no sign be given unto this generation. And he left them. And entering into the ship again, departed to the other side. After feeding them at his table there in the wilderness, the Lord dismissed the multitude and immediately sailed to the west side of the Sea of Galilee, into the region of Galilee, where there awaited him a group of Pharisees and Sadducees, according to Mark I'm sorry, Matthew 16:1, the parallel passage to the passage we're now looking at in Mark, chapter 8. these uh, group, This group of Pharisees and Sadducees did not come to seek uh, answers to honest questions, but rather they sought to lay a snare and a trap for the Lord by putting to him certain questions that they believed they would be able to use against him subsequently in a court of law. They particularly asked that Christ show them a sign from heaven proving that he was sent by God, a sign from heaven. I would suggest that what they may have been particularly seeking in wanting a sign from heaven was a sign like that of Elijah the prophet to specifically call down fire from heaven for them to see. You remember Elijah on a couple occasions had fire come from heaven. Once on the Mount of Carmel when fire came down and consumed the sacrifice which he had laid before the Lord. And on another occasion well actually a larger occasion but three different incidents when the king sent 50 men and ordered Elijah to appear before him. And he said, If I am a prophet of God, let the fire of God proceed from heaven and consume you. And on two occasions it did that. consumed 50 soldiers. The third time the captain was very, very wise and very polite with, with Elijah and was in effect saying, please, uh, sir, will you come with me to to see the king? Uh, And so they were spared. But this would appear to be the type of sign from heaven, call down fire from heaven, that we might see it right now. Dear not only were these religious leaders so blind that they would not believe the many miracles which the Lord had already performed, and of which they had themselves witnessed, no doubt, many of these miracles personally, or had heard of many other miracles which the Lord had performed, but now they also want Him to to give them a particular miracle tailor-made to their own taste. In effect, send down fire from heaven. We want a sign from heaven. You see, here is where the rationalization and justification of unbelief leads. The obstinate and unbelieving are never, never satisfied with the evidence or the testimony that is presented to them. For ultimately, the problem with the obstinate is that they do not want to believe. They do not want to be convinced of the truth. In order to show the willful obstinacy of the unbelieving, turn with me to Matthew chapter 27, verses 41 and 42 is one illustration of just where obstinacy and this blindness will lead. Matthew 27, verse 41. While Christ was hanging upon the cross, it says, Likewise all the chief priests, mocking him with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others. Himself He cannot save. If He be the King of Israel, let Him now come down from the cross and we will believe Him. We will believe Him. There they say, Lord, or Thou Jesus who does call thyself the King of the Jews, come down from the cross, and we will believe thee. We'll take thee to be our King, our Messiah, the one in whom we trust. But then, the Lord doesn't come down from the cross, He comes out from the dead. And they know and hear the reports because it is their very guards who have been knocked over, as it were, who have fallen out of fear in such a way that they were like dead men at the the tomb being opened and the glory of the light coming from it as the angels displayed the fact that Christ was no longer there. They witnessed, the soldiers witnessed that. And they fled, and they went to Jerusalem. And they clearly told these same men what had occurred. And they told them, we'll cover you, we'll bribe you, we'll pay you if you circulate this particular story instead of what actually happened say that its disciples came and stole him away. And if it comes to the ears of the civil magistrate, because if they, being in that situation, they could actually lose their lives. If they fell asleep on the job. If it comes to the ears of the civil magistrate, we'll come to your defense. See the depths to which unbelief will go. In rationalization and justification, unbelievable. But their unbelief is no different than ours, dear ones. Before Christ gave to us faith and trust in Him, we would have rationalized and justified it away in the same manner. That is the nature of unbelief. That is why we must hate and abominate unbelief in our lives and seek by God's grace to overcome it. But the Lord sighs deeply at their unbelief and says that He will not give them the sign for which they have sought. In Mark chapter 8, the Lord says, verse 12, Why doth this Generations seek after a sign. Verily I say unto you, there shall no sign be given unto this generation. In Matthew's gospel, we find a more complete response given by the Lord in Matthew chapter 16, verse 4, the parallel account to this one, when the Lord says, there, a wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. And there shall no sign be given unto it but the sign of the prophet Jonah. See, the Lord condemns this generation represented by these Pharisees and these Sadducees who seek a specific sign from heaven after witnessing many signs, after having heard the truth, and then saying, in effect, that's not enough. I want more, and I want more, and I want more. I want it tailored made to my particular uh, taste. That's testing the Lord. That's putting God to the test. The Lord, in effect, states that the sign of Jonah will be the supreme sign that he will give unto them. He will not give them a sign immediately he will not call down fire from heaven. He will not perform any wonder before the presence at that particular time. But he says, I'll give to you the sign of Jonah that I am who I said I am. The sign of jo- Jonah, as we just read in Matthew, that is that as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth three days and three nights. In other words the sign of Jonah was Christ's own resurrection. The fact that he is no longer in the grave, no one has ever produced his corpse, his bones, the grave was empty. And every particular argument that has been posed to explain that away in a rationalistic way falls by the wayside. In fact, there is a book called Who Moved the Stone? wherein an unbelieving attorney set out to disprove the resurrection of Christ. And through going through all of the possible explanations as to how Christ's body could have been removed, came up with the only conclusion that Christ was raised from the dead and became a believer. As he realized Christianity is founded upon that truth, ultimately, we have and serve a living Christ. The sign of Jonah would show that Christ was who he said he was, his own resurrection. Dear ones, the miracles of Christ reveal both the obstinacy of the enemies of Christ as well as the faith of the disciples of Christ because these very miracles that send the unbelievers into further blindness and obstinacy are the same miracles that draw the believer unto Jesus Christ to embrace Him. I would ask you today, do the miracles that are recorded in the Scriptures, the mighty acts of God, in providing for your family every day, every night, in giving to you the children that you have in restraining you from various acts of wickedness and sin that he has preserved you from do these particular wonders of God have any effect upon you at all do they put you in a neutral position or do they send you fleeing to Christ to embrace Christ for His goodness, for His mercy. Remember the Lord Jesus Christ said that He would have us either cold or hot, but He would spew us out of of His mouth if we are lukewarm and indifferent and unaffected by His truth and by the mighty acts which He has performed. If it does not affect you as you read to the Scriptures concerning Christ's power, concerning his saving wonders and delivering his people and in your own life and in your own family, if it does not affect you, there's a real problem. There's a real problem there. And each of us, if that is the case, ought to be beseeching the Lord, pouring out our hearts to the Lord today, saying, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Before we move on to the last main point, let me simply ask Ought we, dear ones, to seek for miraculous signs as an evidence of those who are faithful ministers of Christ today? In Matthew chapter 7, we read these words Matthew 7, verses 15 through 23. Jesus said, Beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. Not every one that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. The Lord has given us in his word an an ample test by which to look at those ministers who profess to be ministers of Christ, judge them by their fruits. Their fruits being their doctrine and their practice. Do they profess the truth? Do they profess as we have come to profess ourselves as being a faithful summary of the truth of God, the truth that we find, for example, in the Westminster Confession of Faith? Do they live that life as well? Do they practice and are they seeking to practice holiness and godliness? And so these are two tests that we can apply to to any particular minister who claims to be a minister of the Lord Jesus Christ. Although the Lord, dear ones, is not limited in performing the miraculous in this age, should he so will it. Nevertheless, it is not by the miraculous sign and wonders that we will ultimately know the man, whether he be of God or not, but by his doctrine and by his practice. In Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, There the Lord says, if a prophet comes and he prophesies something to come to pass and it comes to pass just as he prophesied it. Yet, if he leads you into a doctrine that will lead you away from the one true living God and from the truth that's professed and believed and taught in the word of God then you're not to believe him and not to follow him. Even if What he prophesied, even what he did, was, we would say, of a miraculous nature. God does not put his stamp of approval upon those who lead people away from Christ. No matter what they may profess to be able to do by way of signs and wonders. Thus, secondly, Christ's miracles reveal the obstinacy of the Pharisees and all who will not turn to faith in Jesus Christ. And finally, the last point, Christ's miracles reveal the weakness of Christ's disciples. In Mark chapter 8, (coughs) verses 14 through 21, Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread, Neither had they in the ship with them more than one loaf. And he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have no bread. And when Jesus knew it, he saith unto them, Why reason ye because ye have no bread? Perceive ye not yet, neither understand? Have ye your heart yet hardened? Having eyes, see ye not? And having ears, hear ye not? And do ye not remember? When I break the five loaves among five thousand, how many baskets full of fragments took ye up? They say unto him twelve. And when the seven among the four thousand, how many baskets full of fragments took ye up? And they said, Seven. And he said unto them, How is it that ye do not understand? After having rebuked the obstinacy of the Pharisees and the Sadducees there in Galilee, the Lord again enters into the boat, and now he crosses back to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the east side side of the Sea of Galilee. Apparently, in the haste to leave the hostile Pharisees and Sadducees and in the in the haste to to leave the uh, the disciples apparently had forgotten to make preparations by taking with them sufficient bread for their trip. Not that it was going to take them days to get across the Sea of Galilee, but uh, they uh, apparently had forgotten to bring any food except they had one loaf of bread with them there in the boat. And so this was an all-consuming worry and concern of theirs. Oh no, we forgot to bring bread. We forgot to prepare for this trip. All we have is this one loaf of bread. And since their mind was so consumed with the bread that they had forgotten to bring, they were ill-prepared to deal with Christ's warning in Mark 8.15 when the Lord said, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of Herod. We'll come back to the disciples in a moment. But what did the Lord mean by this warning? Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of of Herod. Well, leaven is an additive to the bread, which makes the bread rise and become puffed up. The Lord was therefore warning the disciples concerning the corrupt teaching which the Pharisees and Herod had added to the truth of God, which caused them to become puffed up with pride in the sight of God and in the sight of man. (coughs) The Pharisees, you'll recall, added to the doctrine of God by bringing their own man-made worship into the worship of God, thus making void the commandments of God which alone ought to be the standard by which we worship God. We do not worship God according to our will, according to our whims, according to even our sincerity in, in seeking to add to the worship of God. We worship according to his authorization, according to his commandments. The apostles condemn any other type of worship In Colossians chapter two, verses twenty through twenty-three, as will worship, worshiping according to man's will rather than according to God's will. The Lord Jesus had had said in in Mark chapter seven, which we considered a few weeks ago, verses one through thirteen, that it was God's commandments that were to be our regulating principle within worship. The Pharisees also, you recall, placed their particular traditions alongside the commandments of God in authority. And in effect, Jesus said, when you place anything alongside God, uh, God's word in authority, you put your tradition, you make void the commandment of God. And so, in effect, you, you then exalt that tradition above God's commandments. And so the Pharisees, by way of their leavening process, by way of introducing that into the, the, the religion of Christ, had introduced various forms of worship and had introduced their own traditions to make those equivalent in authority to the word of Christ and to the word of God that was condemned by the Lord. That's what the leaven of the Pharisees refers to. Now, in, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 12, where it says in Mark 8, verse 15, the leaven of the Pharisees and the, the, the leaven of Herod, it's interesting that Matthew says the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of the Sadducees, instead of the leaven of Herod. I would submit to you that the reason that that's the case is that they are in effect synonymous. The leaven of Herod and the leaven of the Sadducees was essentially the same corruption and pollution that was introduced into God's religion. <clears throat> because the the Herodians, the followers of Herod, this political party, had looked for every way to advance their political agenda through the religion of the Jews. Whereas the Pharisees had added to the doctrine of God, although they were more conservative theologically than the Sadducees, the Sadducees were the liberals between the two groups and used whatever political maneuvering that they could muster in order to hold their positions of authority in the Sanhedrin. The Pharisees despised the Romans for their military occupation of Palestine, whereas the Sadducees were opportunists and looked for ways to use the Romans to advance their own cause and their own goals. Thus the Lord condemns both the false doctrine of will worship on the part of the Pharisees, as well as the false doctrine of expediency and compromise of the truth. That is, the ends justify the means. And that on the part of the Sadducees. The Lord calls both of these teachings eleven. That is, that they were additives to the true religion of Christ. Additives. Additives which would eventually spread and corrupt all of religion, all of the truth, if they were not purged out from Christ's community, from Christ's people. Which is, in fact, what Paul calls us to do in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 7 and 8, to purge out the leaven which is in your midst. By way of loving discipline, Keep those who are leavening the church through their corrupt doctrine and through their corrupt practice from coming to the Lord's Supper. Keep them from coming to the Lord's Supper in hopes and in prayer that they will repent and turn to the Lord. Now, the disciples because, remember, they're all consumed with the fact that they forgot to bring bread along with them. They miss this point altogether on what Christ is saying. It just goes right over their head. They say in Mark chapter 8, verse 16, it says, And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have no bread. How you get out of the warning of Christ, you know, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. How you get out of that... That they thought that Jesus was telling them something about having forgotten bread. I mean, a, there is something about leaven, you know, that does pertain to bread, but, uh, but nevertheless, it just shows you how preoccupied they were with the fact that they had forgotten to bring bread. They had forgotten their food. I would submit to you, dear ones, herein is revealed the weakness of the disciples, and again, the patient forbearance of the Lord. Our weaknesses, though they may be very dark, they do show forth the glory of Christ's faithfulness and his patience with us. And this is a classic example. Through a series of nine questions, the Lord rebukes them for their forgetfulness and their slowness to understand the significance of his miracles. Those nine questions in verses 17 through 21... Mark chapter eight. First, the Lord says, "Why reason ye because ye have no bread? Number one. Number two, perceive ye not yet, neither understand. Then number three, have ye your heart yet hardened? Number four, having eyes see ye not? Number, four, number five. And having ears hear ye not? Number six, and do ye not remember? Number seven, when I break the five loaves among the five thousand, how many baskets full of fragments took ye up? Number eight, and when the seven among four thousand, how many baskets full of fragments took ye up? And number nine, how is it that you do not understand? A series of questions. Not a harsh rebuke, but again, asking questions in in such a way as not to beat them over the head, but to bring them to a sense of shame. Again, the Lord now has performed this miracle twice, not once, feeding the 5,000, the 4,000. They hop into the boat, and what are they preoccupied with? We forgot to bring bread. What's going to happen to us? The weaknesses of these disciples and, dear ones, We can smile, but I think we smile because we identify. We say, yeah, that's me. I am so forgetful. The things that Christ has taught me, the things which Christ has done, I have hardened my heart and I have forgotten those truths. And the Lord patiently goes through these list of questions to remind his disciples what the problem is here. What's going on. But I would have you to see, as we close today, you see the difference between the way in which the Lord related to the Pharisees and the way he related to his disciples here? There was unbelief on the part of both. But on the part of the Pharisees, it was an unbelief that proceeded from obstinacy. Willful obstinacy. Whereas on the part of the disciples, it was an unbelief which proceeded from weakness. Weakness. The Lord will not quench the smoking flax, dear ones, He will not break the bruised reed. He will come to us in our weakness and He will, as He ministered to the disciples, minister to us and continue to because we are His and He is ours by covenant. And nothing can break that covenant. Nothing in this world, nothing outside of this world can break that covenant love which God has for his people in which the Lord Jesus Christ will continue to patiently instruct them in, the, in his school. Yes, he will, he will admonish, he will rebuke, and he will at times even severely discipline and chasten, but he will also always do so because he loves us so much that he's not willing to leave us in that state, in that place, but to instruct us and teach us to grow in him. In answer to our original question, why does the Lord give to us not only his word to teach us, but give us his miracles, his mighty acts in history to teach us, that he might show us his compassion. That he might reveal the obstinacy of the unbelieving and the faith of those who truly believe. And finally, that he might reveal our weaknesses and his faithfulness. Ought we not to treat one another with that same type of ministry in spite of weaknesses. God, help us. Please stand with me in prayer. O oh Lord, our God, we thank Thee for Thy Word, which has instructed us this day as to how we are to view Thy, thy miracles and Thy mighty acts in history, and in our own lives. We pray, Father, that Thou would, would continue to show us Thy grace and mercy. O oh Lord, we are thankful that in Thy covenant Thou will not forsake us. And though we are very slow to learn and to understand, and though we harden our hearts at times and become forgetful of all that Thou has done for us, O Lord, we plead with thee, continue to send thy Spirit. Continue to break our hearts. Continue to show us the light of thy truth. Continue to bring us to shame that we might again turn to Christ with tears of repentance and new obedience. O Lord, let us as well seek to show that same mercy which thou hast shown to us, to one another, and being patient rather than harsh, and being faithful rather than cutting people off immediately. We ask our Lord that Thou would teach us to be able to recognize the difference between those who are living in obstinacy and those who are in weakness. For Father, we are required to deal with people accordingly. We ask our Lord and our God that Thou would keep us from obstinacy and that, Father, Thou would keep us absolutely dependent upon our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.
1: This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. t 6 L 3 T 5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7:31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to His commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves